the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I remember my freaking husband telling me about this, like right after it happened. But he said that he was sitting on the couch. He was in between his dad and Danny. And he's like, dude, you're gonna be, you're gonna be fine. You know, you have like nothing to do with any of this. Danny just like stares at him with just like a dead, like, dark like gaze and and just smirks at him and he's like yeah i didn't have anything to do with it my husband says his heart just like dropped and his dad was just like yeah um i have a meeting i gotta get to and then i you know i gotta go and then he said once they got like outside his dad looks at him and he was like holy freaking crap he did it he fucking killed her Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting here. Well, I'm not sitting here, but I'm here with Alexis Linkletter. Um, I'm currently in Atlanta. I'm recording from my Lady Gang tour. We did record a lot of these episodes ahead of time because I knew I'd be crazy, but I'm in the midst of it. And we finally made an hour to get this episode out. Honestly, I haven't seen your face in weeks and it's, except I've been stalking, obviously your tour updates on social media, but no, I'm super happy to see you and I I can't wait to get you back here in LA. I know we were just talking. Alexis is like, I've been trying to check up on you and you've been giving me one word answers. Like, are you alive? I can't be needy. So I'm just like, (laughs) I'll talk to her when she gets back. But I, I know what a one word answer means. And it means like, I, I can't text you I can't process. I can't process. (laughs) Well, I'll be back soon and then we'll be in person recording again. But until then, I want to remind everybody about our Patreon because if you can't get enough first degree, there's always uh, some bonus content over there. and Not just bonus content, a full another episode per week. So four more per month. So if you really, I always struggle when I find a show, I always want more Um, and I can't find other shows that I like. So if you love us, four more episodes a month is not too shabby. It's not too shabby. And we're unfiltered. We're doing whatever you guys want us to do. It's We're trying to please you all over there. So I think it's a fun place to be. That's right. It's the master of your own domain. It is. Is there any other housekeeping before I go to the day? No, I think that's it. Bring it on. Okay. So today is October 5th. And this is my favorite one of these days. It's Chic Spy Day, which I kind of like. I want to know more. I don't I don't really know more, but I was on the Empire State Building uh, when I was in New York. We did like a little thing there and we were there. It was during a U.N. conference and there were so many Secret Service members. Oh, interesting. They are chic spies, but they're very obvious chic spies. It's not very secret, but it's chic. OK, well, I'm here for that. I loved it. And then also we've got National Kale Day, National Apple Betty Day, which is some kind of a pie, and uh, National Pumpkin Seed Day. Not not really great for the food. You usually like can rely on a good food day, but not today. Not today, but you know, we'll make we'll make it through. We'll make it through. All right. Well, that is enough of that. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Cause this could be you.
Falling in love really is one of the best feelings in the world, isn't it? And when you're a teenager, finding your perfect match is exhilarating. It's that can't eat, can't sleep, hold a radio over your head in the rain kind of feeling. And just one text from your crush feels momentous. A first date incites butterflies. Suddenly you're a couple, you're holding hands in the hallway, you're going to parties together, and you're talking about your future. It happens so fast. And it's hard not to let your imagination get away from you. Marriage, honeymoon, kids, even though you're young, you forget that there's so much more to learn about life and so much more to learn about each other. Knowing that this person is your person makes you feel so special. You trust them fully, even if you shouldn't. And you feel like they always have your best interests at heart, even when they don't. So what happens when it turns out that the person you thought you knew, the person you thought you loved, reveals their true and insidious nature? Well, when that happens is when everything changes. So today's case takes place on September 1st of 2003. P. Diddy's Shake Your Tail Feather was the number one song in America. You know what? As it should be. Classic. Classic song. Finding Nemo and Pirates of the Caribbean were neck and neck in theaters, followed closely by The Matrix Reloaded. And here's a little fun fact about Pirates of the Caribbean. The movie was based on the Disney theme park ride, which I think that we both thought was the other way around. I had no idea. I didn't either. I didn't know. But that ride, I mean, such a classic. Love that restaurant. Um, I love the smell of that ride. The smell of that ride has this weird, like, nostalgic, wet smell. But it's not gross. It just smells like Disneyland. It does smell like Disneyland. Um, During this time, too, the U.S. was in a hotbed of political emotion as President George W. Bush approves the invasion of Iraq just a few months earlier, thus beginning the war on terror, which is a wild time in our history. And it was a wild ride, right? So the setting for today's case is Auburn, California, and that's located in Placer County. So Auburn's a quaint small town just 30 minutes northeast of Sacramento, and it's home to about 14,000 people. Surrounded by gorgeous forests and rivers, Auburn is a popular hub for hikers, bicyclists, and whitewater rafters. And perhaps Auburn's cutest feature is its year-round farmer's market. And in the late 1800s, Auburn was founded as a successful mining town during the California Gold Rush. And today, Auburn's a California historical landmark and contains the most well-known Gold Rush Museum in the U.S. And if you're super savvy into true crime, you may also recognize Auburn as a location where the Golden State Killer... Joseph D'Angelo was fired from his police officer position because he was caught stealing in 1976. And in August of 2020, D'Angelo was sentenced to multiple life sentences without the possibility of parole for being the Golden State Killer. So our first degree for today's case is named Jessica, and Jessica grew up in Auburn. And this is what you need to know about her. When she was 16 years old, she started dating her high school sweetheart. And a spoiler alert, that same high school sweetheart is now her husband. It's so cute. They've been together for 20 years, which is just so inspiring. And in high school, Jessica's boyfriend and his father lived in a duplex that shared a wall with a woman and her 17-year-old nephew, Danny Besmer. My husband's dad lived in this fourplex in downtown Auburn. And his next door neighbor, he was actually really close with, she took in her, her nephew, which was Danny. And so Danny lived with his aunt for quite a while until like right before all this happened. So my husband kind of, you know, lived right next door to him. 
So Jessica's boyfriend actually shared a wall with Danny and his aunt. So everyone was very chummy and saw each other a lot and spent a decent amount of time together. So naturally, Jessica would go on to marry this boyfriend. She spent a ton of time over at their house. So she would run into Danny a lot. So here's how Jessica remembers him. He just seemed like a totally just like normal guy, just a little like off. I feel like you can just kind of like sense it, you know, like, or just like, like a weird guy or whatever. Danny wasn't your typical awkward, but fun nerdy guy who played too many video games. He had a strange vibe and other people noticed it too. An acquaintance named Rebecca told the Lincoln Messenger newspaper that Danny kind of gave everyone the creeps. And Danny once told this acquaintance and her boyfriend how he could kill someone. And he wasn't joking. He went into some excruciating detail And Danny had grown up in Weimar, California, but went to school in Auburn, which was just a short 15-minute drive away. At first, Danny attended Placer High School, but he later transferred to Madhu High Independent Study. Madhu High closed in 2018, but in the early 2000s, it was a special alternative high school. There's like one like really huge high school, Placer, that like everybody in Auburn goes to. And then there's like a homeschool thing where you come in like once a week or twice a week and it's Maidu. And my husband actually went to Maidu. While some details of Danny's academics aren't public knowledge, our research indicated that he went to juvie for a while before dropping out of high school altogether. And his teachers were kind of baffled because he only needed 10 more credits to graduate. It's unclear why Danny dropped out, but he was known for partying, smoking weed, and drinking, and high school probably wasn't his highest priority at the time. Luckily, Danny's girlfriend's dad helped him get a good job working on cars at the Gold Rush Subaru dealership. Right, and Danny's girlfriend, her name was Justine Vandershoot, and she also went to the same high school, Madhu High, but that's not actually how she met Danny. So Danny and Justine were introduced at a pool party by 19-year-old Brandon Fernandez, who was friends with Danny through this time they spent together in juvie. And this party was actually at Justine's family's house. And Brandon Fernandez was invited because he went to school with Justine's sister, Christine, who was 16. So Fernandez actually brought Danny, his new friend, to this party because he thought Christine and Danny would hit it off. But Christine was not interested in Danny at all. Undeterred, Danny was going to meet someone, he set his sights on the younger Vandershoot sister, 15-year-old Justine. And Christine told the Sacramento Bee newspaper, at first, Justine said she didn't like him. He wasn't her type. But we all went to the lake the next day, and before we knew it, they were together. And Danny and Justine were complete opposites. Where Danny gave people the heebie-jeebies, Justine was sweet and well-liked by everybody. She was popular, pretty, and a cheerleader, loved the color pink, movies, baking, arts and crafts, and sports. Her friends described her as intelligent, fiery, and compassionate. And Justine was also super close with her family, especially her sister, Christine. And Justine loved spending time with little kids. She was super excited to be a mom and raise a family of her own one day. And Justine was known for her independent spirit and determination. If she set a goal for herself, she would be achieving it. Like when Justine wanted a truck, she got a job, she earned the cash, and she paid for her used silver S10 Chevy pickup all on her own. She knew what she wanted and she was going to get it. But her boyfriend, Danny, he wasn't exactly on the same wavelength. He was into drugs, he was into partying, he was a high school dropout. 
he somehow ended up with this beloved cheerleader. And as you might guess, their relationship wasn't always sunshine and rainbows, but no relationships are. Justine and Danny would sometimes break up, but they always got back together. And their relationship also left everyone confused, including our first degree, Jessica. She always seemed like just super happy. She was a cheerleader, just like super cute. It was like with the things that I would hear about him, I'm like, how are they together? But yeah, she was just super cute, bubbly, happy, you know, and then just seeing her in passing, she always said hi. And I had heard that they had like broken up a few times and gotten back together and, you know, like even like some of her friends, like, didn't even know why she was with him and things like that because she had her life together and then him I don't really know much about what he was doing but it didn't seem like he was really doing much but the heart wants what it wants and no matter what problems Justine and Danny encountered they always ended up figuring them out over time Danny became very close with Justine's family he would have dinner with the Vandershoots at least three times a week, which is a lot. A lot. It's a lot. So they must have liked him. Like, even though he has all these things. Yeah. They liked him enough. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a lot of times a week to be having dinner with somebody if you didn't like him. Totally. So Justine's dad hired Danny to work at the Mercedes-Benz dealership that he managed. And that's how Danny was able to get the experience for his gig at the Gold Rush Subaru dealership later on. And when Danny was having a hard time at home, he actually lived with the Vandershoot family for a month. Right. And living with your girlfriend's family is a really big deal. So this isn't just a high school fling. Justine and Danny were serious about each other and people around them could see that. So when Justine and Danny talked about getting married after dating for a few years, Justine's family wasn't totally against the idea. At the time, Justine was 17 and Danny was 18. But their plan was when she graduated and turned 18, they would get married. So the next few years of their lives seemed mapped out, and they also seemed to be going according to their plans. Since Auburn was such a small town, our first-degree Jessica and her boyfriend would run into Justine and Danny pretty frequently. When Jessica's boyfriend and Danny were neighbors, they'd see them around the duplex. But even when Danny moved from his aunt's house to an apartment, Jessica and her boyfriend would spot Justine and Danny around Auburn. And Jessica and her boyfriend had one such run-in with Danny and Justine in late of August of 2003. They were at a Subway sandwich restaurant when they spotted them. And from where they were sitting, it looked like Justine was upset about something. We went to Subway and actually had run into them. It was weird because they were actually like sitting right next to each other and it was just them at the table. And when we walked by, like, my husband was like, oh, hey, you know, like, what's up? And she just kind of had her head down, just, like, quiet, didn't really say anything. It was just kind of super awkward. Now, as someone who comes off awkward pretty regularly, I can say I've had dozens of encounters just like this. And you don't think about them. Maybe you do when you're younger. You pour over, like, oh, I was so awkward. I should have said this or that. Yeah. You don't stay in your head for long. You run into someone at Target who you don't know that well, and you have this awkward exchange. They're a dime a dozen. You have them and will continue to have them throughout your life. So Jessica didn't think much of this, but that all changed on September 2nd when Jessica heard some shocking news, news that was spreading through town. Justine was missing and everyone was alarmed because this wasn't like her. This wasn't like her at all. So Jessica, Justine's family, and the rest of Auburn's tight-knit community, they were all confused and all worried. So how could Justine go missing? 
especially in a small town like Auburn. Where could she possibly be? Did she run away? Was she kidnapped? Did someone hurt her or worse? You know the drill. To answer all these questions, we have to go back. Justine had mysteriously vanished. And once the police were made aware of the situation, they did their best to retrace her last steps. On the evening of September 1st of 2003, Justine and Danny had gone over to Justine's parents' house to eat dinner with them. After they were finished eating, Danny went home. Everything seemed normal at the Vandershoot house at the time, and Justine seemed like her normal self as well. She asked her parents for gas money and then took a shower and called her older sister, Christine, who lived in Napa. And she helped write invitations for a party that her mother was hosting, and she was also starting a new job the next day, so she needed to be well-rested. So at around 10 p.m., Justine kissed her mother goodnight, set her alarm for the next day, and went to bed. But the next day, 17-year-old Justine had vanished. Right. And in the morning, when Justine's mother realized she'd vanished, she realized that some odd things had happened the night before. The mom's name, her name's Lynette. So she woke up at 12.30 a.m. and she saw that the front door to their family house was ajar. Lynette was perplexed, but not so alarmed that she did anything about it. She just closed the door and went back to bed. So the next morning, this is when she notices that Justine's truck is gone. When Lynette looked into Justine's bedroom, she saw Justine's purse was on the bed and her TV was still on. So at this point, Lynette is annoyed. She figured that her daughter had snuck out to see her boyfriend and had accidentally fallen asleep at his apartment. She wasn't thinking something's wrong. She was thinking, I am an annoyed mom and I'm going to give her a stern talking to when she gets back. And Lynette would later tell the Associated Press that I just thought she was going to be grounded for a week. But that irritation morphed into fear the next morning when the medical office where Justine was supposed to have started working called Justine's mom. And they informed her that Justine never showed up for work. Worried, she immediately reached out to Danny and left him a message. Was Justine with him? And if not, did he know where she was? When Danny didn't respond, Justine's mom began to panic, rightfully so. And it was then reported that Justine was missing to the police. So when word first began to spread that Justine was missing, people weren't immediately worried. The local authorities suspected that Justine was out with friends or she'd run away. She's a teenage girl. It's not that weird to think that she could be out partying or doing anything else a rebellious teen might do. But then investigators discovered Justine's truck at a local park and ride. The truck's doors were locked and the alarm was set. So at this point to them, this made it seem like, okay, wherever Justine had been going, she wasn't in a rush and she wasn't frantic. She'd even taken the time to secure her truck and set the alarm. So everyone hoped Justine was safe. No alarm bells were really going off yet. And our first degree, Jessica, even at this point, was optimistic about the situation. Initially, we didn't even like think, you know, we just thought like, oh, crap, like she's missing. They found her truck. Like, that's that's crazy. But like maybe somebody picked her up. Although police were treating Justine's disappearance as if she were a runaway teen, not a missing person, they acknowledged that the circumstances were suspicious. When Justine left her house late that night, she'd taken her phone and keys, but she left behind her purse, her credit card, and her driver's license. So obviously Justine hadn't planned on being gone for very long. And while the police didn't yet believe that there was foul play involved, they were still anxious about Justine's safety. An official told the Sacramento Bee, there's a flavor of it that isn't like normal runaways. As time passed, Justine's mother, father, and sister became 
sick with worry. Their little girl was gone without a trace. Justine's mom told the Sacramento Bee that the entire family felt numb, and none of the Vandershoots would rest until Justine was home safe. In interviews, the Vandershoot family always had pink ribbons pinned to their shirts, since pink was Justine's favorite color. And even though law enforcement had yet to investigate the case, as if Justine were truly, truly missing, the Vandershoots weren't going to sit by and do nothing. They were determined to find her. And I'm sure they were pissed that the police weren't immediately taking this seriously. And while the police were kind of dragging their feet, the Vandershoot family did have help. Mark Kloss, who was a missing children's specialist, consulted with Justine's family. And Kloss's own daughter, 12-year-old Polly, was kidnapped by a home intruder in 1993. And if that sounds familiar, we did do an episode about this case if you're interested in learning more. But to give you kind of a brief summary of that case, after 65 days of searching, it was discovered that Polly had been murdered within two hours of her abduction. As a result of the Kloss's horrifying experiences, he started the Kloss Kids Foundation. Their mission was to advocate for the safety of children. And Kloss advised the Vandershoots not to wait for the police to take lead in the investigation, but to do it themselves. So the Vandershoots called upon friends, family, and neighbors to help search for Justine, and the response was really enormous. Within days, they had circulated over 2,000 flyers with Justine's picture, and they raised over $20,000 for a reward for any information about Justine's location. And using Kloss's Missing Children's website, they sent over 5,000 faxes and 2,000 emails to law enforcement agencies and other business informing them of Justine's disappearance. So the Vandershoots are doing everything they were supposed to do, and the Auburn community came out in force to find Justine. They helped search the entire town, including the park and ride parking lot where Justine's truck was discovered. Hundreds of people comb this area on foot, motorcycles, and even on horseback. It was an incredibly difficult process for a number of reasons. First of all, Auburn is densely wooded. There are trees, very thick, dense brush everywhere. One searcher told the Sacramento Bee, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. Yeah, I bet. It's very difficult to search for any missing person in this way. It's also emotional and taxing. And since these searchers were amateur volunteers, not trained investigators, they weren't really sure what was usable evidence for Justine's case. Out there, you're going to find clothing, you're going to find hair, you're going to find duct tape, you're going to find trash. How do they know if it's related to Justine's disappearance? So Justine's father told the Placer Herald newspaper, we're not professional, but we're giving it all we can. And even though police believed that Justine was a runaway, they were still thoroughly investigating her case. Law enforcement officials devoted a significant amount of their resources, their time, and their personnel to trying to find her. Even the Sacramento FBI helped the local sheriff's detectives conduct extensive interviews and searches of Justine's home and her truck. And while officers pursued a number of leads, nothing was really panning out. Regardless, the Vandershoot family was happy with the work of the police, and they would later praise local law enforcement's unwavering commitment to Justine's case. So a week after Justine went missing, friends and family held a candlelight vigil in her honor. The event was packed. In addition to hundreds of concerned Auburn citizens, four Sacramento news station crews and many journalists attended also. These attendees prayed for Justine's safe return. They sang gospels and provided moral support to the Vandershoot family. One of Justine's friends told the Lincoln Messenger newspaper, I'm not surprised how many people came out. Justine was very popular, but I do find it strange that her boyfriend is not here. Well, that's an excellent point. Where was Danny? Well, the answer to that question may surprise you. 
Naturally, on the heels of Justine's inexplicable disappearance, her long-term boyfriend, 18-year-old Danny Bessemer, was under heavy scrutiny. After all, his girlfriend was missing. But Danny was the picture-perfect example of a concerned boyfriend. Well, he was for a while. On the day Justine was reported missing, Danny had actually stopped by her work to deliver lunch. And he was shocked when he didn't find Justine there. When Danny later learned that Justine was missing, he was so overwhelmed with grief that he threw himself to the ground and started sobbing. Justine's older sister, Christine, said Danny was so distraught over Justine's safety that he cried on her shoulder. And in the first few days of her disappearance, Danny helped search for Justine, and he even wore a t-shirt with her photo on it. But right around September 6th, just four days after Justine vanished, Danny discovered the truth about Justine. Or at least that's what he told everyone was the truth. You see, Danny knew exactly where Justine was, and he shared his knowledge with police officers, reporters, and with the Vandershoots. Justine, according to him, was safe and sound in Florida. So why on earth would Justine be in Florida without her purse, without her credit card, without her driver's license, and not contacting her family to let them know she was safe? Well, according to Danny, Justine had run away with a guy in his early 20s named Dave. Dave was in the Navy, and Justine had met him while she was on a trip in Georgia. And if your spidey senses are tingling right now, we understand because ours were too. Dave sounds made up, but he wasn't. Dave was a real guy, and Justine knew him, and he was in the Navy, and he lived in Florida. So Danny did have those facts straight. And Justine had been talking to Dave. The contents of Justine and Dave's conversation are unknown, though, so it's likely Justine wasn't cheating. But how did Danny even know Justine was messaging Dave in the first place? At first, Danny said one of Justine's friends told him, but that was a lie. Court documents later revealed that Danny had tapped Justine's phone. And this wasn't the first time that Danny had broken into her phone. To outsiders, Danny and Justine appeared to be straight out of a movie. The well-liked social butterfly falls for the surly loner. But not many people knew that their relationship was really struggling underneath the surface. Even Justine's mom thought that Justine could do much better than Danny, but she had no idea the couple was on the verge of breaking up. Justine's family probably assumed that Justine was dating Danny because she saw through his off-putting exterior and understood that he actually had a heart of gold. But unfortunately, Danny didn't have a heart of gold. In fact, due to his controlling and jealous nature, Danny was an emotionally abusive asshole to Justine, frankly. And while some people in Justine's life didn't know about Danny's toxic personality, others could see Danny's possessive nature. Justine's friends described Danny as being vicious and resentful whenever Justine showed anyone else attention. Justine's best friend told the Sacramento Bee newspaper that Justine was aware of Danny's jealousy and it was a big problem. Danny and Justine would get into huge fights every single day because Justine changed her cell phone password so Danny couldn't listen to her messages. It's all fucking insane. Bizarre. And it sounds familiar. We hear this kind of shit all of the time. And clearly, Danny had this pretty terrible habit of invading Justine's privacy. Even Danny's neighbors were freaked out by Danny's crazy, intense behavior. So after living with his aunt next door to Jessica's boyfriend, Danny moved into a two-bedroom apartment with his friend, Brandon Fernandez. And we've mentioned Brandon Fernandez before. Danny met Fernandez in juvie, and Fernandez actually introduced Justine and Danny at the Vandershoot pool party. 
So just a reminder, that's how Fernandez fits in all this. So anyway, the neighbor told the Press Tribune newspaper that Danny wouldn't allow Justine to go to parties without him because he feared other men would hit on her. And one time during a small get-together at Danny's apartment, he made a bunch of guys leave because he thought that they were flirting with Justine. So this was unsurprising to our first read Jessica and her boyfriend. Because when Danny was his neighbor, Danny overreacted to men hitting on Justine in very bizarre ways. And they'd seen this themselves. I mean, he had like some, like a few like weird encounters when Danny's aunt was like out of town like Danny and his friends and Justine would be over like partying and they'd be out on their like shared like big patio in the back and just being loud. And my husband had a friend who when Justine was on like the patio, like he had like a huge like crush on her and he'd always be like, hey, when you're like over that deadbeat, you should call me or, you know, when you're done with that loser, like hit me up. My husband had told me that Danny had just like barged into his house one time, my husband's house one time. And my husband's just like playing games with the friend that would hit on Justine. So he said Danny had like just barged into the house and he's just like sniffing cinnamon, like a thing of like a freaking, I don't know if it was like ground cinnamon or something, but just like sniffing it like crazy. And my husband's like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, this is just so I don't feel anything or something like that. And then my husband's like, dude, get the hell out of my house. Like, what the hell? And Danny, I think he had said something like, you mess with me and I'll fucking kill you or something like that. It was something along those lines. Like, there's obviously something freaking wrong with this guy. Maybe he was just high as shit, like, wanting to freaking confront, like, my husband's friend or something like that. But, yeah, it was just, like, a weird situation. So the whole aggressively sniffing the cinnamon stick is really what gets me. It's very fucking weird. But needless to say, Justine and Danny weren't the romantic opposites tracked couple that, you know, some people kind of thought that they were. Their entire relationship was defined by Danny controlling Justine. At all times, Danny needed to know Justine's location. He needed to know the people she was with and what they were doing. And Danny was more Justine's jailkeeper than her boyfriend, really. And we say this all the time, but don't get us started on why didn't she leave. We've said it before. We'll say it again a million times. Abusive relationships are extremely complicated and they're really fucking scary. Right. And it just so happens that Justine may have been in the process of leaving Danny once and for all. So according to Gold Country Media, Justine's best friend believed that Justine wasn't sure about her relationship with Danny anymore. And she said towards the end, Justine kind of got tired of him. And even Justine's dad noticed that she suddenly was very hesitant to marry Danny, even though that was sort of part of their plans. So when Danny found out by tapping Justine's phone that she was talking to another guy, I don't know who would blame her for considering other options besides Danny. And tapping her phone is an insane thing to do. And Danny spread this rumor that Justine ran away with this military man to any person who would listen. And eventually, Jessica caught wind of it. I just remember all these like stories like, oh, she she ran away with some guy from the military or, you know, she just... She didn't want to be with Danny anymore, and 
just like all these different things. And I feel like he was even saying something like that, or she, like she, she met somebody and ran away to be with him or something like that. When speaking with the Press Tribune newspaper, Danny claimed that he had received a phone call asking him about an application for a credit card in Florida. And according to Danny, this was probably Justine trying to use his name for a credit card to get some quick cash. When explaining how Justine had supposedly fled to Florida with her new boyfriend, Danny told the newspaper, It didn't hurt so much she was gone. It really made it make sense. My heart may be broken, but nothing but love for all of Justine's family bleeds out. Yeah, oh fucking K. Sure. Danny then told the newspaper that he was hoping the Vandershoot family would clear his name. The audacity of this man, and most men, frankly, but anyway. (laughs) So police at this point, they have their eye on Danny, and they have for a while. According to Danny, law enforcement officers interviewed him for over nine hours about where Justine could be. It's a little ironic that Danny, who had harassed Justine constantly about her location, couldn't actually tell the authorities where she was. And when pressed, Danny continuously denied having anything to do with Justine's disappearance. He stuck to his, she ran away to Florida with some guy story. And Danny claimed that he still loved Justine, saying he dreamt about her frequently and that he had pictures of her all over his apartment. But Justine's father didn't believe him, and he thought that Danny was full of shit. Big time. So Don told the community to ignore anything that Danny said, and he urged everyone to listen to the information provided by the police department. Don believed that Danny was acting really suspiciously, because he was, especially because Danny had stopped helping in the search for Justine. And when Don dropped by Danny's apartment to check on him, the place just reeked of weed. Don told the Sacramento Bee newspaper that he thought it was peculiar that Danny would rather get high than help search for his missing girlfriend. When the Vandershoot family requested that Danny take a voice stress test to prove that he was innocent, Danny refused. He told reporters that he was worried his answers would be misconstrued. And when the police finally got a hold of the alleged new boyfriend, the Navy Florida man Dave, Dave was immediately cleared of any involvement in Justine's disappearance. So if Justine wasn't in Florida with Dave, where was she? So our first degree Jessica got to thinking about the last time she saw Danny and Justine when they were at that subway. And in hindsight, she realized that she more than likely had witnessed the couple fighting only days before Justine was reported missing. I think it was like two days before. She just had her head down and you can kind of tell that like they were probably just in like an argument or something was going on and like holy shit like they were totally fighting like that was that was weird you know in hindsight you think back about like situations like that and you're like we just saw them you know like the other day and now she's missing after justine disappeared jessica's boyfriend and his dad had an unsettling experience with danny so at this point of what's going on the police were zeroing in on danny as probably the only suspect in Justine's case. His bizarre behavior, making up the story about Florida man Dave. You know, he's acting weird. And at this point, they'd also recently impounded his car to search it for evidence. And they'd also taken his computer to search that too. So investigators found that Danny recently withdrew most of his savings from the bank. That never looks good. And they'd also discovered that there were two men staying at Danny's apartment the night Justine vanished. And these men were interviewed, and they told the police that Danny had left the apartment from 11 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. 
which was the exact window when police believed Justine had gone missing. When Danny came back to the apartment, according to these two men, he was covered in dirt. So for all the reasons I just mentioned, the police think Danny had something to do with this. Regardless of that, you know, and there was suspicion over him from the townspeople as well, members of the community. Regardless of this, Danny's aunt asked Jessica's boyfriend and his dad, remember their neighbors, to hang out with Danny one day to show him support. And they agreed. And here's what happened. His aunt had asked my husband's dad to come over and hang out with Danny. Like, he really needs some support and some friends. Because I remember my freaking husband telling me about this, like, right after it happened. But he said that he was sitting on the couch. He was in between his dad and Danny. And Danny was just kind of, like, thumbing through the yellow pages or something, like, weird. And he's just, like, thumbing through it, just, like, trying to keep busy or something. And he said it just felt really, like, awkward and weird. And then he's like, dude, you're going to be, you're going to be fine. You know, you have, like, nothing to do with any of this. And then Danny just, like, stares at him with just, like, a dead, like, dark, like, gaze and, and just, smirks at him and he's like yeah I didn't have anything to do with it my husband says his heart just like dropped and his dad was just like yeah um I have a meeting I gotta get to and then I you know I gotta go and then he said once they got like outside his dad looks at him and he was like holy freaking crap he did it he fucking killed her It had been two weeks since Justine vanished, and the Vandershoot family was really losing hope at this point. They weren't sure that they would ever find Justine alive or not. And any leads about Justine's location had dried up, and the areas around Auburn had been searched from top to bottom. But after hours of interrogation by local police, FBI agents, and investigators who specialized in child crimes, Danny finally broke. He took police officers to a remote forested area and pointed out a site where he claimed Justine was buried. 16 days after Justine vanished, Danny Bessemer was arrested on suspicion of murder. The next day, investigators discovered Justine's naked body buried in a four-foot dirt grave outside of Applegate, which was a city 10 minutes away from Auburn. And because her body was so badly decomposed, the autopsy couldn't confirm Justine's exact cause of death. However, the results showed that there were dirt particles in Justine's trachea and her esophagus. Experts would later determine that Justine had probably been choked unconscious and then buried alive. It is horrible. Awful. Before burying her, Danny reported that he poured a cleaning solution, something like Drano, down an unconscious Justine's throat so her body would decompose faster. Oh my gosh. We were just shocked. I mean, my I remember my father-in-law just being like oh my god I freaking knew it like with his whole situation you know with their little encounter and then it just being you know like really you know like it actually happened and he had something to do with it it was freaking insane but I think you know it's like something like that is like extremely just devastating for everybody With the news of what had happened, Justine's family was inconsolable. They were heartbroken. Not only was Justine gone, but her killer was like family to them. 
They'd invited Danny to dinners, let him into their home as a guest, helped him get a job, and supported his engagement to Justine. They were heartbroken and they were deceived, and this is an ultimate betrayal. Justine's sister told the Sacramento Bee, It hurts that somebody we trusted and took in the family, and I treated basically like a brother, would do this. He was out there Saturday searching with us, and I cried with him and comforted him. That he could sit there looking at me in the face and not say anything, it just hurts. Justine's father told Danny later, I tried to make you a better person. I tried to coach and mentor you, provide you the guidance and love that I believed was lacking from your life. Unbeknownst to me, this would be the worst mistake of my life, one that I can never forgive myself for. What an awful, truly sickening situation and the worst kind of betrayal in the world, frankly. When Justine's body was discovered, the Auburn community did all that they could to support her grief-stricken family. The Vandershoot family home was filled with cheese trays, homemade cookies, and dozens of bouquets of flowers. And everyone was shaken by this loss, so local high schools closed for the day and offered grief counseling for the students and staff. A local bank created a memorial fund for Justine entitled Justine's Fund that collected money to support the agencies that helped search for Justine. But unfortunately, there would be more heartbreak in store for the Vandershoot family. Because as it turns out, Danny hadn't killed Justine alone. And Danny's accomplice was somebody that no one expected. On September 17, 2003, 21-year-old Brandon Fernandez was arrested right alongside 18-year-old Danny Bresmer for the murder of 17-year-old Justine Vandershoot. They were both held without bail in the Auburn County Jail. And as we've mentioned, Brandon Fernandez and Danny were roommates. They'd known each other for years after meeting in juvie. And since Justine had been dating Danny for years, she got to know Fernandez too. But friends said that Justine and Brandon did not get along. And that checks out because Brandon wasn't a good guy. Fernandez actually owned a website called yourpimp.net that promoted serious violence, included murder. And Brandon was probably cheating on all of his girlfriends. And it seems as though Justine had been friends with one or more of them. Because at one point, Justine searched Brandon's room for evidence of his cheating. So it sounds like she was probably friends with the person who Brandon was dating and was trying to help catch him cheating on this friend. And Fernandez told other friends that Justine was fake and put on a face for everyone. According to Jessica, her husband knew Fernandez and also did not like him. I think he was just like a spoiled brat. Like my husband worked at Auburn Toyota and at the time and remembers him coming in he had this like nice like Toyota Celica and had blown up the engine a few times and his dad would bring it in and get it fixed or new engine or whatever so he kept getting you know I don't know so he was like a spoiled brat and just totally had the attitude of it from everything I heard. But it's not a crime for Fernandez to just dislike Justine. Why was he involved in her murder, and how the hell did Danny drag him into this? Well, Fernandez might have actually been the mastermind behind Justine's death. He told the two guys staying at his and Danny's apartment to lie about Danny and his whereabouts the night that Justine went missing. And throughout the pretrial process, Fernandez showed absolutely no remorse. 
Danny, however, in a five-page letter to Justine's family, explained how sorry he was. And in that letter, Danny blamed Fernandez for persuading him to kill Justine. He wrote, Justine would have not died nor even gotten hurt had Fernandez not been there that night. And according to some research, it appears that Justine's family also buys into this idea that Fernandez instigated the violence. Justine's sister told CBS that Danny was a follower, not a leader. Whereas Brandon, yes, he was a leader and he could get people to follow him. We really do believe he's the number one plotter and planner. And a reminder, Brandon Fernandez went to school with Justine's sister, Christine. They were friends. So Justine's sister will have some real insight into this. Justine's father explained that he blamed Brandon Fernandez more than Danny since Fernandez had a decent upbringing with financial stability. Justine's family thought Fernandez had even less of an excuse to be a terrible person than Danny did, who had a tough family life. So according to Jessica, who was friends with Fernandez's cousin, so this is some small town shit. Everybody knows everybody, and I think this is a great example of that. So Jessica's friends with Brandon Fernandez's cousin, and even Brandon Fernandez's own father, suspects they had a heavy hand in Justine's murder, especially since Brandon Fernandez might have stolen a shovel around the same time this happened. And remember, Justine was buried, and people who know the case well think there's a connection there. Brandon's dad lives on this property, or family lives on this property, and he had, like, gone out, and I guess he's, like, very meticulous about, like, his tools and where everything goes and always puts everything back. His truck was missing, and his shovel was laying in the yard, and he had some, like, plywood missing. So I don't know if he, like connected the dots or whatever or was like holy shit it was brandon brandon's mom is like no my baby's like perfect he would never do anything like this and i think his dad was like like he totally had something to do with it but what happened to justine the night that she disappeared while awaiting their trial in jail danny and fernandez eventually confessed to most of what happened and this is what we know on the evening of september 1st justine and danny ate dinner with her parents and unbeknownst to Justine's parents, Danny invited Justine to get some weed after dark with his pal, Fernandez. So that night, Justine snuck out, took her truck to a park and ride, and got into a vehicle with Danny and Fernandez, and they all drove away. And she had no idea what was about to happen. Right. And we're never going to be clear on exactly what happened. But here's allegedly what happened. So apparently after picking Justine up, instead of getting weed like they suggested to her that they would do... Danny and Brandon Fernandez took Justine to an out-of-the-way forested area, and it was there that Danny actually confronted Justine about the Florida military man named Dave, who she'd been speaking to. And remember, he found out about Dave by going through her phone. And it was then that he accused Justine of cheating on him. And she was probably shocked and upset to learn that Danny had yet again tapped her phone and accessed her personal messages. But Danny was unrelenting during this confrontation. He just wanted Justine to admit that she was cheating on him, but she wouldn't, probably because she wasn't. Then, it's unsure how it escalated, but Danny strangled Justine. As we said, they used cleaning fluid and they buried her. And Fernandez's role throughout this is unclear. What we know for sure is that he was present and he helped. And to this day, Brandon Fernandez denies responsibility in regard to Justine's killing. But court officials and others maintain that he is lying. And honestly, we'll never know for sure how integral his role was in this murder. But we do know for a fact that he disliked Justine 
and he wanted her to stop meddling in his love life, et cetera. And is that enough reason for Brandon Fernandez to want to help his friend murder his girlfriend? That's a great question. So we asked this to Jessica, and she actually has an alternate theory as to why Brandon Fernandez may have wanted to hurt Justine. And that is that perhaps they were in a relationship together, Brandon Fernandez and Danny. There's rumors. Actually, my sister's husband knows, I I can't remember if it was Justine's family or Danny's family, but he actually told me the other day, because I didn't know that he like knew them, but he was like, he's like, weren't they, weren't they like, weren't Danny and Brandon like hooking up or something? I was like, what? Like I had never heard of that one before. So I guess that was like part of a rumor going around. Well, when I first was going over this stuff, I, I couldn't understand why Fernandez would want to help. Like it, it really doesn't make sense at all. If this is like a domestic abuse situation where Danny is suspecting Justine's cheating, it's so odd that a man would involve another man in that. Right. I mean, there it's he just seems so disconnected from the entire thing. And it's like, even if you don't like her, like, that's just such an extreme thing to get involved in when it's just kind of none of your business, really. No, and I just wonder if he was involved and they planned it in advance together. Like, how does that how do these conversations even come to be? I always wonder that when there are two co-conspirators and they plan in advance. And it's just like, how do you guys get there? only one has any sort of a motive, really. You know what I mean? Like, how do you find this other dude that's just going to get on board with your shit? It's just very bizarre. Very. So it is impossible to know, you know, why? Because Danny and Fernandez never went to trial. So at first, both Danny and Fernandez pled not guilty, which is so fucking stupid, because they literally led police to Justine's body. But in March of 2005, they both changed their tunes and they took plea deals. Danny pled guilty to first-degree murder, and Fernandez pled guilty to second-degree murder. In exchange for disclosing where Justine's body was hidden and pleading guilty, they avoided harsher sentencing, although the death penalty was actually never on the table. Danny was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison and a fine of $40,000. Today, he's 37 years old and incarcerated at the Valley State Prison in Couchola, California. Fernandez was sentenced to 15 years to life in prison and a fine of $20,000, and he's 40 years old and incarcerated at the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility in Corcoran, California, and we don't really know why he's being treated for substance abuse. Right, and since neither Danny nor Brandon Fernandez received life without parole, they are considered for release every few years, and every time this happened, the Vandershoot family is forced to fight to keep them behind bars. And while both of these monsters have been denied parole so far, it's not without significant effort from those who love Justine. And every time parole hearings come up, the Vandershoots are forced to relive the nightmare of their loved one's murder. Justine's sister explained to ABC10 that the parole hearings feel like a hurricane with all of the emotions they bring back to the forefront of her mind. Her family feels like keeping Danny and Brandon in prison is common sense. They murdered Justine. They shouldn't get a second shot at life. And frankly, Justine was buried alive. You know, this is no heat of passion, second degree murder charge. This was cruel. This was calculated. And this was callous. And she deserves retribution. Hearing what they did to her, like, 
knowing that she like was alive when they freaking buried her, you know, it's like she had dirt in her freaking lungs and it's like, he's, you know, like her family lost their sister, their daughter. And, and he, you know, has an opportunity to freaking be out soon. It's just insane to me. The Vandershoot family has created the hashtags, hashtag Vandershoot Army and hashtag Justice for Justine, which they use to rally their community whenever Danny and Fernandez become eligible for parole. Currently, Fernandez will be set up for a parole in July of 2027, and Danny will be reconsidered for parole in August of 2025. If you're interested in signing petitions to help keep Justine's murderers in prison, check out the Placer County website for more details as we get closer to those dates. And we'll also post the link in our Instagram and in our Facebook group so you can check it out as well and it'll be easy for you to get there. Please, please, please sign it and help the Vandershoot family who would be absolutely crushed should either of these monsters get released. Absolutely. And like so many others, our first degree Jessica's life has also changed as a result of Justine's unwarranted murder. Justine's boyfriend, the man that she loved, killed her. And Jessica wonders if we can't trust our boyfriends or girlfriends, if we can't trust the people closest to us, who can we trust? And now Jessica's kind of always on the lookout. You just like trust the person you with and you just don't think that they're going to do anything to hurt you. And she just ended up with the wrong person. I've got like my mace in my purse. I've got a taser. I've got like all the things. And I literally just assume that somebody's going to kidnap and murder me at like any second. There's like freaking like creeps out there, you know, like the world is like crazy and like crazy crap can happen and you never know who the heck is gonna do it it could literally be anybody within seconds of meeting a person we learn so much about them would we be friends with them would we take them on a date would we avoid them at a party call it a hunch call it a sixth sense but we all have experienced that sudden flash of insight that steers us towards or away from someone in our path. Following your instinct about a person's true intentions may seem hokey. After all, first impressions can be overrated, but that unexplainable intuition we get about people can also be rooted in reality. From the very beginning, many people had a weird feeling about Danny. Even Justine didn't like Danny at first. She's not my, he's not my type, I'm not interested. Something about his persona didn't sit right with Justine's friends and family. Take care in your own life to trust your gut instinct about those closest to you. And you never know when that sinking sensation in the pit of your stomach could save your life. Well, huge thank you to Jessica for being our first degree guest for the story. If you're listening and you have a story to tell, please email us. Hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group because we're talking true crime all the time. Make sure to join our Patreon. If you're looking for new episodes a week, we got four new episodes a month for you and come back tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And please, please sign the petition to keep Danny and Brandon Fernandez behind bars for the Vandershoot family. They've been through hell. Um, It's the least we can all do. So again, we'll make that link available on 
our social media. Yes. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers. And keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are court documents, Placer County official website, Gold Country Media, Find a Grave, Change.org, BringJustineHome.com, Ancestry, The Mountain Democrat, The Daily Titan, KCRA, CBS News, ABC 10, The Placer Herald, The Sacramento Bee, the Napa Valley Register, the Lincoln News Messenger, the Press Tribune, CDCR Inmate Locator, ExploreAuburn.com, CA Office of Historic Preservation, Grief Haven, Class Kids Foundation, BBC NPR, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source.